What's going on? Jason Bay here. Welcome to Blissful Prospecting. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, I have conversations with top reps, sales leaders, and other sales experts to help you turn complete strangers into paying customers. So today we're talking about a topic that uh, we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about on this podcast, and it's MedPick. And our guest, David Weiss, he's head of sales at LeaseUp. And one of the things I like about David is he's one of those guys that not only teaches things, but he's a practitioner. He's been doing this for almost 10 years, and his clients that implement this typically see a 2x increase in revenue sold, 90% plus forecast accuracy. If you're a sales leader, that's got to sound like a dream, <laughs> and a 30 plus percent increase in close ratio. So we're going to talk about MedPick and Unpack It, how it's evolved and you know, what it is, what it isn't, and we'll get into some tips on how to implement it. David, this is not our first time talking, but this is our first time recording a podcast together. It's good to, good to see you. Jason, thanks for having me on, man. Really pumped for this conversation to be here. Appreciate you. Yeah. So you shared a story with me before we, well, I guess while we were preparing for this, and there was a sales leader that you had, I believe it was at ADP, and he was talking about this approach and you were a little bit resistant about it. If I remember correctly, tell us, uh, unpack that story a little bit. So uh, Gregory Donovan, um, he's still a mentor, really good friend. And what's what's awesome, so he's the uh, head of sales for a company called Centair. And I'm actually, um, you know, we're, we're coming full circle here. I, were, I worked with him almost 10 years ago. Um, he taught me MedPick, and I'm now actually training his entire sales force on MedPick. Wow. So um, we, we, we just That's finished. So cool. Uh, Agreeing to that, we've stayed in touch over the years. Uh, like I said, one of a good friend, great guy. Um, so it's really cool how this is all coming full circle. But um, when he first introduced me to MedPick, um, I was probably that typical, not special, high performing or good performing rep. Um, been in sales for quite a while, working for you know ADP, which is a pretty prestigious sales organization. Um, and I thought I had things figured out. So uh, Gregory was a new leader of mine. He approached me with this new methodology, uh, and I was like, "Hey, you know, Greg, um, I, I, I look at the leaderboard. My numbers are good. My close ratios are good. When I tell you I'm going to sell something, I do all those things." And he's like, "Yeah, but I think you could do more. I think you could do better." And I'm like, "Who is this new guy?" Like, <laughs> um, so I push back and I push back, and he kept, you know, he's just a great human. Like, he he wasn't a jerk about it. He would just, you know very strategically during like business case reviews and strategy sessions, just ask me questions like, you know, Hey David have, you know, do we have a mutual action plan in place or what's their timeline or, Hey, what's the, what, what's their decision criteria? Why are they buying from us? Why now? Why change? Who's all involved? And I, and I'd loosely be able to answer some of these questions. Some of them been like, man, um, it's a, a good question. I didn't think about that one. Let me go find that out. And that happened enough to a point where I was like, He's just literally med picking me in every single conversation we have. And he's finding gaps in my deals that help me. Okay. Yeah. Maybe something to this. And he did it very sophisticatedly and respectfully, but it like just, he just go through it in his mind every time and ask me questions. And, you know, eventually I was like, okay, I now know what he's all, he's always going to ask me these things. So unless I'm, I'm a jerk to my boss, I need to be ready to answer these questions because he has that right. 
And then I started seeing the power of those questions. And then I did, then I said, screw it. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to adopt it myself because why not? And, um, you know, the rest kind of became history for me as I started closing more and teaching others and seeing their success and, you know, so on and so forth. It's a pretty hilarious story because when I work with managers, I always bring this up. I was like, you teach your reps how to sell. How come you don't use those same techniques on your reps? You can't just leadership. You can't just tell people what to do that. You have to sell them on it. You know what I mean? (laughs) So I'm curious for you because what someone might be thinking about methodologies is, do we need a sales methodology? Is it, is it about using this one versus all of the other kind of sales methodologies out there? So is MedPick a sales methodology? Do you look at it like that? And what would you say to someone that's like, dude, there's lots of other things too out there. Why is why would this be the one you know that I would use? How would you walk someone through that? Yeah, no, I love that question. And, and so MedPick is not a sales methodology. A methodology is like, uh, I don't even want to define it. It, it you know, you've got your challengers and you've got your gap sellings and, you know, there's, there's spin selling and there's so many sales methodologies. Um, I'm a believer that there's no one right answer, that there is, you know, so much wisdom from all these different points of view. And depending on who you're selling to, when you're selling, like they, they all have their, their place. What I like about MedPick is it sits on top of all of that. It's not a sales process. You're going to follow it literally. In your first conversation with someone, you're not going to you know, ask them all eight letters of MedPick. And it's not BANTS. You're not MedPicking someone to death. Um, what The purpose of MedPick, and I look at it as a gap analysis checklist. It is there to sit across your entire deal. And after, before every, every meeting and after every meeting, you look at it and you say, huh, do I have this information? Um, have, have I built a business case? Do I know who my economic buyer is? Do I know their decision criteria, their decision process? If we're in the deal, do I know the paper process? Have I figured out an identified pain and have I done it on a persona level? Do I know, do I have a, a champion in there that, that's selling for me when I'm not there? Have, do I know who I'm competing against? Is it status quo with somebody else? Have I positioned against it? Where do we stand? Like, I'm, like literally, I just went through MedPick. Like, I just asked myself those yeah. questions. And then where I see gaps, it's like, okay, now I'm going to dig into those gaps. And then your methodology, buyer-centric, seller-centric, you know, all the different ways, like that's how you go about getting the answers to the questions you just asked to identify your gaps. But it, it sits on top of the deal and it helps you do that. Yeah. I think that's an important piece of clarification. And it sounds like this is something that if I'm a sales leader, I could use for deal reviews too. This is literally so, what, this is the topic and the framework behind the deal review. Yeah, well, I see MedPick deployed successfully. It's a it's a common language. It's a common view yeah. and way of talking about um, opportunities in business. And to me, MedPick is designed for the rep. It, it should be adopted by the rep. The rep should just ask themselves the questions I just asked myself a second ago and, and see where they have gaps. And then the leader should come over the top and reinforce that in their deal strategy where the leader's asking questions, the rep's asking those questions, they're seeing where those questions need more, more you know, detail. And then together they're coming up with, okay, how do we get that information? How do we accomplish that? And that's what the leaders and helping the rep strategize around. So, you know, to me, yes, it can be used in deal reviews, business reviews for the rep, for the leader. The leader, to me, it's all about forecast accuracy. If MedPick isn't good, if someone doesn't really understand paper process and decision process, that's where that's where forecast accuracy gets really tight. Like those are where like you figure those things out. You can figure out exactly what you're getting a deal. Yeah. And I love that as a rep, you could use this as a way to self, 
you know, diagnose, you know, gaps yeah. in your deal as well. So before we get to the sort of what the acronym again stands for and digging into it, I got to know just your personality too. When, when uh, Gregory was sort of med picking you on this, were you the type of person, like even in your personal life, are you a big systems guy? Are you normally like that? Or did you kind of naturally do a lot of these things and you were just very good? Are you like, tell me a little bit more about that. I, I, it's, it's definitely a hybrid. I'm like one of the, like, you'll, you'll see on my LinkedIn profile of a picture of a scientist. Um, yeah. I, I love um, taking a scientific approach to things. I love figuring out processes I, to me, like as a head of sales, one of the things I, I task myself on is um, can I build, can I, how can I operationalize something? How can I, how can I build it for scale and how can I operationalize it? So the masses can use it easily MedPick is one of those things that does it for me. So like, yes, I, I've always kind of viewed myself scientifically. Before MedPick, I kind of just did these things. It was gut. It was maybe I did some of these some of the time. What MedPick gave to me is that consistency, like every single deal yeah. forever. I look at through this lens. I ask myself these questions, and then I can you know figure out where I have gaps, consistency, consistently gaps, where I need to change my process because I'm always missing these things, you know, stuff like that. Love it. Let's dig into it. So you want to kind of unpack the acronym again, and let's spend some time talking about each uh, each letter and what it means and what we need to do. Yeah, I'll go through it rapid fire, and then we'll, we'll circle back. So um, M, metrics, that's your business case. E, economic buyer, that's that's ultimately the person who can create budget for good ideas. Um, it, a lot of people think of it as the signer. It's not always the signer. It's sometimes the person who, again, it's, can, can create budget for good ideas. You have two Ds. You have your decision criteria. That's like the buyer's wish list. You have the decision process, all the people involved, their, their timeline. Uh, think of it almost your, your mutual action plans lives there, things like that. Um, then you have P, and the P is paper process. That's the legal side. There's a difference between a business process and a legal process. And as you get into larger deals, enterprise deals, you really need to understand legal. Um, it, it's kind of like the difference between, um, I'd say, small business and, and even um, mid-market sales, the legal process isn't as complex just simply because the deals aren't as big and, and not as many people involved. But when you start getting into enterprise deals, like the paper process is a, is a big deal. It can delay your deal in a couple months even. So that's where it's really, you know, large deal forecast accuracy can shift and move and push a lot. Paper process helps with that. Um, you have your I, which is, um, and depending on who you, what medic trainer you talk to, it's either identify pain or implicate pain. The implication of pain and where people often mix up between pain and metrics is, you know, pain to me is a is a feeling and a symptom. Metrics are the the output, the business case that wraps around that feeling or symptom to try, to actually drive a return on investment. Um, and then uh, you have your two C's, uh, and your two C's uh, are uh, champions. These are not coaches or people that like me they're truly a champion for someone selling for me when i'm not there and then your last one is you know who you're competing with in the deal your competition got it let's dig into metrics so where do you see people messing up when it comes to metrics and business cases and that sort of stuff yeah they um it's either they're too high level um or they don't get and maybe this is also too high level but they don't um get economic buy-in or sorry, um, a buy-in from an economic, from their EB economic buyer, uh, or they're, uh, not quantifying it far enough. So like, I'll give an example. There's a lot of people that are like, 
we're going to save you, um, like, what's your metric today around uh, how much time it takes you to do this thing? Cool. You do that thing. Our solution improves that thing by 30%. So we're going to have a 30% time savings on that thing. And they stop there. They don't go as far as saying, so if we could save you 30% of that time, how does that impact the business literally down to the dollar? How does that then tie into an operational organizational goal that, you know, grow revenue by this or save revenue by this or help you expand into this new market in this way at this time frame? Like, how does it actually tie to a business objective? They miss that. And then they also miss, they, they get it validated by a end user. They get it validated by, you know, a mid-level decision maker and they think it's real. And then when it gets to an economic buyer, someone that's ultimately going to sign off, those, those mid-level folks or, or one level below that economic buyer, they're you know, going to them and presenting the solution. Hopefully, they're involved in your deal if they're not. But um, they're going to that individual and they're saying, hey, we want to buy this thing. And that person's saying, why? And they're like, well, we want to solve these problems. Okay, cool. How much does it cost? Cost this. Well, what type of ROI are we going to get for it? Uh, I don't know. Or we're going to get this level of ROI. And they're like, how did you get to that? And they look at it and they're like, no, I don't care about those things. We're trying to do this. So if you don't get your economic buyer involved, your economic buyer is going to look at your ROI in it through a different lens than the people below yeah. that economic buyer. And if you don't get the economic buyer to say, I agree with this and I see it the way you see it, then when it gets to them, you stalled your deal or killed your deal because they can't prioritize it because you're not speaking their, their language. So the metrics in the business cases, am I correct in saying that – that is for the economic buyer. The only Absolutely. thing that matters on that business case is what the economic buyer cares about. And you mentioned something really important. You said connected to a business objective. So, yeah. no, go ahead. So, like, to me, when I'm building business cases, I'm looking at it both from a functional level. So, I'm trying to think through the lens of, of all the people this impacts. But what people often miss is they just build it here and they don't build it over here for the economic buyer. You kind of have to do both because yeah. you think like almost like an OKR, you, you have these, your objectives and your key results, and then you have the people under them that are responsible for achieving their piece of that objective and result. But you need to build a business case to both hit here and hit here. And if you aren't, you know, a, a accomplishing it from both, you're, you're missing a piece of the puzzle that someone cares about. Um, so yeah, you're you're building it kind of through the lens of of you know the the different facets and and again to your point tying it back to um, the broader business objective that is what your economic buyer is going to care about. Got it. And one other thing you mentioned too, the buy-in piece, I think is super important to make sure that we don't gloss over. You can't just put an ROI you know, or a business case together with some numbers that people look at and like, where the hell did you get these numbers did, you know? So there's, I'm assuming a lot of collaboration involved with getting the metrics and being like, Hey, dude, are these believable? Like I think working together with them to do it and getting their stamp of approval is super important. Yeah. It's funny. Um, and I always, so I always get a, a challenge or an eyebrow raise when I say this, um, a business case doesn't need to be right. It just needs to be agreeable. And yeah. so many people spend time trying to make it perfect just to get to an economic buyer who destroys it because they view it through a different lens. It, it doesn't need and, – and, and frankly, a good economic buyer is going to de-risk the hell out of it. If, if you're saying, I'm going to give you a 10x ROI, they don't want to go to their board. 
their CFO. They don't want to go to others, other key stakeholders that sit at the table with them and say, I'm bringing a 10x ROI to the business. They don't need to. They can say, I'm getting a yeah. 2x ROI. And when they get a 5 or a 10, they look like, you know, the ch- like massive champions. They don't want to overcommit. So they're going to de-risk it. They're going to beat it up. They just want to get to a point where it's like, I agree that we're going to get to at least here. And I'm comfortable with what you've shared with me that I believe you can get us there. And, and, and that's, yeah. that's the ethical. Love it. Let's talk about E, economic buyer. A little bit more detail on you know, what is the economic buyer? How do I know who the economic buyer is? And just you know, common mistakes and stuff that folks make. Yeah, you know you're an economic buyer when they can create budget for good ideas. Mm-hmm. If they are saying to you, we don't have budget, or I need to get budget, or I need to put this in my budget, um, or I need pricing to you know, see if we can even afford to buy this, you are not at an economic buyer. So an economic buyer is typically someone with a C in their title or an SVP at a, at a large organization. Um, it's not someone that can spend money. There's a lot of people in business that can spend money, but unless someone has a den of, unless it's an inbound sale, in other words, there's an active project out there that they have funds for already and they're looking for a vendor to spend those funds with to solve a, a, a pre-identified business problem. Unless you're in that scenario, um, you are essentially creating a need, creating a driving a change and in, in introducing a known or unknown problem in a way to solve it to a business. If you were doing that, you are asking for new money in order to get new money. They either need to create it or steal it from somebody else. So in those situations, the reason why the economic buyer is so important is because you want to deal today. You want to deal now. You don't want to deal in a year or two years from now when you hit that next budget cycle or cycles. If you are at a someone who cannot create budget, you are literally at the whims of budgetary cycles. If you're with someone that can create budget, budgetary cycles no longer matter. This individual can look at the problem you're trying to solve, how you're trying to solve it, the business case around it and say, I'm taking money from this department or I'm creating money because I can see this making me money. I'm just going to go do it. And if you're not at that level, you're just delaying your deal. It doesn't mean you won't win. It just means you're, you're going to take longer than getting it right now. Yeah. So multi-threading, because typically these are not the people you're doing the first sales call with, in my experience, at least. <laughs> You know, typically this is going to require a decent amount of multi-threading, yeah? Yeah, yes. Um, well, and, and to me, it kind of it kind of depends. Like, I'm a big fan of uh, Brandon Fluhardy and Jamal Reimer. And one of the things Jamal and I talk about, and he talks about all the time, is kind of um, th- is transformation and, you know, getting to executives and, and different ways to do that. Um, I'm a very big fan of starting with the economic buyer. Yeah. Um, Put it sharing with them directionally what we've done, sharing the, my big idea with them and directionally the ROI I could have for them. And then, you know, getting pushed down with an agreement with them that we're coming back. I'm coming back, but let's go to all the functional people within the business to understand deeper levels of the problem, do better quantification, make sure we get buy in and consensus across multiple stakeholders that touch different things. And then, bring you know my findings back to this economic buyer with a reason to change or not um, I'm a big fan of that approach now that's a that's a 
you know, executive level, that that's a harder approach. It's not what most sellers, um, you know, do, but I love it. I think it's the right way to do it. But otherwise, yes, you are starting at normally mid tier and then kind of like climbing the mountain and working your way up to an economic buyer eventually. Got it. Cool. I love that you distinguish this as a person that can create budget too. You know, it's a completely different ball game, you know, when you're talking to, to people like that and uh, love it. So we got metrics, economic buyer, the next D decision criteria. So what is this and what are some common mistakes that people make? Yeah. So decision criteria are the buyer's wish list. So okay. here's a problem that they're trying to solve. The real question is, how are they trying to solve it? So let, I'll give you an example. Like someone may, be, someone may be trying to solve that problem by hiring. Like let's use a really common one, um, hiring headcount. We need more pipeline. That's a problem we want to solve. So we can, you can kind of do that three ways you, or a combination of all three. You, to get more pipeline, you can have the staff you have work harder. You can uh, enable that staff with you know, technology to be more efficient. You can hire more staff or you can outsource the staff. So four ways, let's say four ways. Now, if I am trying to solve that pipeline problem, but I don't want to buy technology in your technology company, well, we're misaligned. If I, uh, if I want to, you know, if I just want to hire more people and you're a recruiting agency that's going to help me hire more people, cool, well, now we're aligned. If you're a company that wants to outsource that, well, no, I just I want them to be my people. I don't want to outsource it. So just because you can solve the problem doesn't mean it's how they want to solve the problem. So you need to do one or two things. You either need to get them to change how they want to solve the problem, or you need to get really well aligned to how they want to solve the problem um, to get your deal. And the a really common mistake people make is they don't understand uh, that or they don't understand the maturity of the customer. So maybe I'm this company and I can solve that problem and 10 other problems that they are having or will eventually have. It's a big solution. We're awesome. We will crush it. We're great. We're the best. Well, if I'm a super mature organization that needs all of that, that's fantastic. But what if I'm not? Or what if I will be there, but I'm not there today. I'll be there in three years. Well, you're going to each of those features functions cost money. So you, even though you're great and can solve that problem and lots of others, you're again, you're misaligned. You're going to be three times as expensive as what they have budgeted because they only want their low on maturity. They want to solve this. They don't want to solve this. So that causes a problem. Or the other way, you solve it in a very narrow way and they're looking, they're a very mature organization. They're looking to solve it in all these different ways. So decision criteria to me is so critical because you have to solve the problem the way they want to solve it at the maturity level that they're trying to solve it. And you as the seller need to figure out all of that so you can present it to them the right way. And, and that, can, that can be a lot and way more complex than a lot of people are doing. Um, and the way you accomplish that often is really good questioning, really good discovery. And then my, my personal favorite is building a scorecard. And what you're doing is you're building a scorecard of, of your key core feature function. You're getting aligned with the buyer on if they agree that's what they want in a solution. You're differentiating that scorecard to the things that make you stand out, and then you're providing it to them to use it with other vendors to do their evaluation. And hopefully, if you've built it right, you're scoring higher than the others. Um, so, man, I just said a whole hell of a lot, but that, that's the idea of decision criteria done right. Yeah, tell me more about the scorecards. That's pretty interesting. Um, so, don't need to be overly complex. Uh, 
essentially think of like the simplest way I've seen it done an Excel spreadsheet. So um, similar to an RFP that a company sends to you, when a company sends you an RFP, that's their scorecard. And what they're doing yeah. is they're having you fill it out and then they're ranking you against every other vendor they sent the RFP to. This is almost like a reverse RFP. You're going to them with a list of feature functions that you do really, really well and written in such a way that it differentiates you. And then you're saying, hey, evaluate our demo against this and evaluate everyone else's demos against it and then score them and then tell me which one scored the highest. And you're also getting lined on, are we missing anything? That's that's us, but are, do you need all this stuff? Do you not need some of it? Do you need more? Because now you're trying to now you're starting to see where your gaps are. Yeah, that's pretty clutch. I you definitely want to make sure to carefully go through that so it doesn't backfire. <laughs> but if it does backfire, yeah. you're, you're potentially misaligned. Like you probably lose anyways. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. Interesting. So the second D. Uh, decision process. You mentioned mutual action plans. When do you start to talk about a mutual action plan? Yeah, and I'll, I'll answer that. And, and then decision process is, is a layer, layers even more than that. But but the mutual action plan, where I love talking about that, it's often like um, in a lot of people's like deal stages, it's like stage like two and a half. It's right around when you're asking the question to them of, hey, it looks like you like what we have. It seems to solve a problem that you're trying to solve. Ideally, when would you want to be live? And you're asking that question. Ideally, when would you want to be live? And it's not like when do you want to sign a contract or when are you buying us or when are we starting our implementation? It's, it's nuanced. It's more sophisticated than that. If you were to buy a vendor, any vendor, when would you want to be live? And what's, what's great about that question is like, well, we ideally want to solve this problem and be live in three months. It's like, oh, you want to be live in three months? Cool. Well, um, our solution takes a month to implement. So we don't actually have three more months to figure this out. We have two. How long does your contracting process take? Oh, well, our contracting process takes uh, three weeks. Oh, so we, we actually don't have two months. We only have a month and a week. How, does, how long does your uh, security review process take? Uh, oh, well, that uh, InfoSec and security, that, that takes uh, about three weeks too. Oh, so we... We actually have um, about three to four weeks to figure this out. Uh, just out of curiosity, um, what other steps are involved in this? Who else needs to be involved? Oh, well, you know, we've had these conversations, but we're going to need to get sign off from this person, this person. And we want to go through an implementation session with you guys and we need to do this. Oh, well, man, it looks like we need to put a lot of things on the calendar and we need to accomplish all of them in the next three weeks. Is that how do we drive urgency there? Maybe we need to have a couple meetings a week now between now and the next couple of weeks uh, to, to be able to hit that time and then this time and then this time and then this time. And now all of a sudden you just, instead of trying to be a pushy salesperson, you are now turning into a advisor and it's like, I'm yeah. now consulting with you on how to get you live when you want to be live and we need to do all these things. And now you can start putting pressure on all of that stuff. Yeah. I love that. I've even seen reps sometimes kind of hint at it, even in that first disco call. You know, if they have 45 minutes, an hour for that first disco call where they just do a quick screen share. Hey, you sound really interested in this. Here's kind of what the next, here's what that process might look like. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, so what else do we need to know about decision process? So decision process, mutual action plan, but it's also things like, um, 
uh, technical criteria, budget, all people involved and why. Um, it's really that kind of map of everything that goes into making a decision um, in the pro and again, decision process and the process around it. So you have your criteria wish list, and then you have essentially everything else around making that decision and all the stakeholders and timelines and, and budgetary cycles and, and, you know, yada, yada, um, all of that kind of goes into the decision process. Where's one place where you see reps missing the boat the most? Really the mutual action plan. Figuring out yep. that time and working backwards towards it. Backwards timeline to me are so um, powerful and reps often will, will miss it. And, you know, it, it's really interesting. They're really, like, they, they, it's like they, you present the proposal. <laughs> it's like, so when are you guys making a decision? Oh, uh, six months from now. So, well, shit, maybe you shouldn't have presented the proposal yet because um, I'm guarantee something's going to change in the next six months. So it's like you're really trying to figure that out early. And, and to me, that's kind of, again, post-demo, you're aligned on that you can solve the problem you're trying to solve. Now it's like, okay, when do you want to solve it? And working backwards and talking through those things really does inform so much of your next actions and when and why. And without that information and working backwards through it, like you could have a gross misalignment and not even know it. Yeah. Yeah. Love that work backwards. So P for paper process. What do we need uh, to know about this? Yeah. So your paper process is, um, is your, uh, decision process kind of mutual action plan again, applied to legal. So this is who's all involved in the legal review. Are they inside outside counsel? Um, what priority is this deal? Um, how many other deals do they have in front of them? Uh, how long does this normally take from start to finish when you guys have done something like this before? What are the steps on, on your side? Like when can we get first pass red lines? When can we get this? When can we get that? Um, it, it's, it encompasses all of those things. There's also flavors of it beyond that that are like, do you have your give to gets mapped? So this is one of the things I teach people to build is like, if someone asks for, you know, a, a decrease in term, are you willing to ask them for an increase in cost? If someone asks you for a decrease in cost, are you willing to ask them for an increase in term? Um, are, are you willing to, if someone, you know, wants a decrease in implementation costs, are you willing to like go to bat and then fight for them to be, you know, referenceable and use their name on their website and a certain number of case studies and testimonials? Like, do you have it yeah. well mapped out that anytime someone asks you for something, you know what you're asking for back? Um, there's also, you know, a flavor here of negotiation posture where it's like, you haven't given a discount yet until you're at the paper process stage, because you know that as soon as you hit procurement, they're going to ask for stuff. And if you've given stuff before that point, that's your new starting point and knowing when and how yeah. to navigate that conversation. So those are, those are some of the like key elements of the paper process. Yeah. Yeah, the gift to gets, you know, thinking about that in advance is so important. Do you find that reps are t just way too willing to lower their price arbitrarily without asking for anything in return? If they haven't been trained to do something different, yes. Yeah. 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 It's tough. A lot of companies, the 
folks with sort of less experience on the enterprise side, oftentimes what I'll see too is the rep is still like, it doesn't really hurt their commission at all. (laughs) They're almost incentivized to just get the deal to cross the finish line. And there's no real thinking around the profitability of it, which is really crazy. I don't know what you see. Um, I, I see reps very much just want to sell stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not, not really think about the implications of the decisions they make. And one of the things I, I, yeah. I teach is like, look, um, you need to expect to get squeezed. You will. You will absolutely get squeezed. You will get asked for a price concession in every single deal, no matter what. You are not in a deal unless you're asking, unless someone's asking for a discount. So if you give a, say you give 10% on every single deal you saw, guess what? You now need to make that delta up and you are now 10% farther away from gold. If you miss your annual goal by by 10% because you gave 10% discounts, you finished year at 90%, like shame on you. Like you get you you chose to miss quota. You gave that away. You could have protected that. And one of the things they don't realize is buyers are trained to ask for discounts. If you simply say no, and you've done a good enough job of building the business case and selling to value and solving a problem, someone will be like, okay, I just had to ask. And you'll yeah. be like, oh my God, I'm so happy I didn't give it away. The other thing is yeah. the second you start giving stuff away, the buyer's like, well, shit, that was easy. I'm going to ask for more. Why yeah. wouldn't they? Until you are comfortable saying no, you're going to get continued to ask for stuff. So m- one of my best tricks, say no, say no early. And if they, and if they're like, well, no, in order for us to move forward, we need to get, we need this at this price. Great. So if I give you that cost, are you signing it today? Well, no, we still need to do all these other things. Okay, well, then we're not even ready to talk cost yet. So like, it's just no, just being comfortable with those conversations is just so key. Yeah. What deal size would you say, would you recommend that someone really takes MedPick pretty seriously? What sort of minimum deal size would someone need or type of sale might this apply best for? So it's interesting. I, I have taught this to folks selling $5,000 deals. All the oh, way wow. up to you know multi-million, tens of million dollar deals. Yeah. The major difference between it is um, on the smaller end of the segment, we're we're typically stripping out paper process, and we're blending it into decision process. Mm-hmm. Um, we're stripping out maybe the need for uh, champions because in a smaller deal there aren't as many. You're only just a single decision maker, maybe one or two, um, so there isn't as much of a need for it. Um, so you're, or you're skinning down, uh, the rigor of getting certain questions answered. Um, but the foundational elements of MedPick, uh, to me are ubiquitous across every single deal, no matter what you're selling, you, you, no matter what you're selling, you need to know, you need to have a business case for change. You need to be talking to someone that can actually, you know, sign it, sign your deal. You you need to know why they're buying. You need to know when they're buying. You, again, contractual is the one like you could sometimes wrap that in decision to decision process, but you need to have some level of pain, no pain, no deal. You need to have, you know, often a champion, but again, that, that one's a little mixed. You need to know who you're competing against. Is it status quo or is it another competitor? I'm 
why they should choose you versus others. To me, like these are just foundational elements of every single type of transaction that happens. Um, yeah. So they, they apply. It's just like, how deeply do you need to go based on the size of the deal? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about identify pain. And do you use pain and problem interchangeably? Those two words? Or are they different um, to you? trying to think i want to think about that um i do i do i often talk about them very similarly um to me and, and where i go with identifying pain is like the it's not just one person you need to identify the pain for every single person that you talk to and every person that's involved in the deal you need to almost be seeking out people um and seeking out pain now Pain problem, yeah, I would use those interchangeably. And, and again, it goes back to the individual. Like, what is the problem this person's trying to solve? What's the problem this person's trying to solve? Like, what's the pain around the problem? You know, th- those things are, are often kind of really, you know, well tied together. Yeah. So where do you see reps kind of falling short when it comes to identifying pain? And how do I know if I've identified pain? So where they're falling short is often they they don't, one, they stay single-threaded. They don't, they don't do discovery with enough people. If you know the decision team because you've asked the question is, you know, five, six people, which is pretty standard mid-market, you know, eight, 10, 12 people in the enterprise. Um, and you've only done what I call like discovery, like deep discovery. Like you've gone through your discovery questions and figured out each individual's workflow and process and bottlenecks on all those things and exactly how your solution solves that specifically to them. People make assumptions that like, oh, these two people are in the same department, so they must be exactly the same. It's like they may be in the same department, but, you know, working and and trying to accomplish different things and they may be struggling to accomplish those things in, in, in different ways and your solution may help them in different ways. So they, they folks just cast, you know, too broad of a stroke across their deal with the pain that that's a big one. Um, the other one is that they're not really spending time one-on-one to, to deeply understand the, the process. It's like, Oh, you, you have a problem generating revenue. Cool. We, we help you sell more stuff. Like, okay, I know your pain. Like if I've always, one of the things I've often said is like, if the problem you're solving or the pain that you are representing is exactly the same for every single customer. You don't know pain well enough because there's the, the pain that your solution is designed to solve for, but then there's a, there's the, the underlying of what's actually happening in the business for the individual around that. And that's often the, the, the nuances that people miss. Got it. That's a really interesting insight there. Shouldn't be the same for every customer. So it's the story around the pain and the problem and the impact it's really having for that organization is unique for every organization. It's not a cookie cutter kind of thing. For the organization and for the individuals within it. Yeah. Gotcha. Champions. Let's talk about champions. I think it's good to clarify like you did with an economic buyer too. How do I know if someone is a champion? Mm. I sell the salespeople, so we use that nomenclature too. I'm your we champion, know. right? You know, so outside of that, because I haven't really sold a lot outside of that, um, in a B2B context at least, what's that like? So are they selling for you when you're not there? So 
uh, are they are they going to bat for you? Are they helping you prep for meetings? Are they giving you insider information? Um, I often teach people how to intentionally build champions. And one, to me, one of the best ways to intentionally build a champion is you have a demo. Four or five people show up to the demo. Before that meeting, did you send each of them an individualized note around asking what, what they're trying, what they'd like to get out of the meeting, what they're trying to solve for, give them some insights specifically to their role, um, and then ask for time to regroup afterwards. And then after the meeting, did you follow up on that and, and schedule time with each of them individually on what they saw, what they thought, how it can help them, what problem they were trying to solve for? Um, and, and really start to, again, intentionally build them as an advocate for you and really understand and get to like even a personal professional win place where it's like, hey, if we solve for this, what does that mean for you? Oh, well, it means for me that, I, that I'm going to have to spend five hours a week less on this process. Cool. What are you going to do with those five hours? Or do you get home to your family an hour earlier per, per day? To, does that allow you to be more strategic? Does that get your promotion? Does that help you, you know, do this better? Like, what are you going to do with that time? Figuring that out and getting someone excited about that. Because that's why people buy stuff. They buy it. People, people listen to your show because they want to go to President's Club, because they want to make more money. Um, like, like, that's why people do stuff is for, the, for these personal wins um, that you need to figure that out. And then so, like, the, the champion is vocalizing that stuff to you. The champion is willing to, you know, prior to your meeting, tell you who's going to be there. What are they looking for? What are those, what are the behind the scenes back, you know, the, the internal meetings that you're not privy to? What happened? What was discussed? What was the outcome? They're, they're willing to give you all that. And then they're willing to collaborate with you and then take what you give them and, and, and do stuff with it and get you in front of the right people. And, and again, it's selling for you when you weren't there. They're, they're willing to do all those things. So. Gotcha. Yeah. And last one, competitors. So what do we need to know about this? There's always two. One is status quo. 57% of all deals end in status quo. No change. Best way to rock something off no change, a business case with an economic buyer. All day long. Two, two most important things. If you want someone to make a change, give them a financial reason to do it and make sure you're with someone that can create budget for good ideas. You do that, someone makes a change. Now, here's the interesting part. doesn't mean they make a change with you. <laughs> it just means they are going to probably do something different. So yep. that's where then the other side of the coin comes in. So there's the why change message and then there's the why you message. And so that's the other side. So why you is why your company is uniquely positioned to solve their problem, uniquely positioned to solve their problem, different than the rest of the landscape. And that's inherently, you need to understand their problem. You need to understand what they want in a solution. And then you need to explain to them why yours can help them achieve that better than others. And in a tactful way, and in a consult consultative way, explain to them the nuanced differences between your solution and others and offer them up questions that they can ask other potential vendors on how they approach solving that problem in a way that yep. gets that company to say, wait, I realize the landscape. I see the differences. I see how these vendors solve it this way. I see how that you solve it this way. And I'm in camp you, not camp them. That's good competitive stance. Got it. Yeah. 57% of deals. 
I think in certain segments, it might even be higher, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, dude, this has been really great, man. I love, we got to do a kind of a deep dive here into a couple of them, but, um, before we have you take off, I got a couple of rapid fire questions for you. You ready? Let's go, man. This has been fun. So from an outbound standpoint, if you had to choose between phone, email, or social, what do you pick and why? Trick question. You have to do all three or you're failing. Yep. What is something you believe about sales that most <laughs> disagree Was with? Is that the right answer, Jason, or are you looking for something different? There's no right or wrong answer. <laughs> okay, keep going. Sorry. Yeah, what's, what's something you believe about sales that most would disagree with? I think a lot of people back in the day got into sales just to make lots of money. And to me, money is a byproduct. Um, I do feel like the, the sellers of today believe that they are there to help people make strategic change and transformation. And I've always looked at sales. And the reason I got into sales is I like solving interesting problems. Yeah. And so I believe that's what sales is, is, is you're, you are there to help shepherd people through change and to solve problems. Um, now, I will say, I don't think that's unique anymore. I, I do think that that has our, our profession has transformed into that. And I'm very happy about that. But for anybody out there that doesn't maybe look at it that way, maybe then that's unique to them. Yeah. And lastly, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself as a rookie sales professional? Uh, that to me is an easy one. Treat your career like a professional athlete. Um, you are making a decision to be in sales. Um, it is arguably, in my mind, the greatest uh, profession in the world. You get to make and help organizations transform into be better versions of themselves. You get paid lots of money to do it. Um, you have tremendous amounts of freedom. It is it has the lowest barrier of entry with the highest potential earnings of any profession in the world. Um, you need to take that seriously. And when I say treat it like a professional athlete, professional athletes, they watch game tape. They try and get 1% better every single day. They read the books. They find the mentors. They listen to their coaches. Um, they, are, they, are, they are students of their chosen profession. Um, you need to be that to be successful or, or reach your, your ultimate potential. Um, and man, to me, like that's, that's the thing I see people missing and, and a lot is they, they don't take our profession seriously enough. Yeah. Dude, I love that. Well, before you take off, let us know where, where can we connect with you? You have a course on MedPick that I think people should check out. So let us know where people can connect with you and learn more about the course. Like you, man, I'm, I'm all over LinkedIn. Find me on LinkedIn, uh, you know, David Weiss, uh, at least up. Um, but yeah, definitely hit me up on LinkedIn. I will, I respond to every message I get. Um, and then um, my uh, my MedPick class is uh, M-E-D-D-P-I-C-C dot co dot C-O. So MedPick dot co. Um, yeah, check it out there. And if I can help you with anything or your listeners with anything, um, I, I am here to support the sales community. I do every, I wake up every single day just trying to um, help the sales community and help all of us sell better. Um, so if I can do anything for you, you know, please let me know.